Section 27 of the Final Report from the National Commission on BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Hawkins, Gaithersburg. The Final Report from the National Commission on BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. Investing in Safety, Investing in Response, Investing in the Gulf, Part 2. B. Safeguarding the Environment. The adequacy of the existing regulatory regime to assure the environmental safety of offshore drilling, as distinct from worker or occupational safety, has come under a great deal of scrutiny since the Deepwater Horizon incident. In its work on this question, the Commission focused on two issues. 1. The application of NEPA requirements to the offshore leasing process, and 2. The need for better science and greater interagency consultation to improve decision-making concerning the management of offshore resources. 1. The need to revise and strengthen NEPA policies and practices in the offshore drilling context. The Commission has reviewed the leasing and permitting processes that MMS followed in the Gulf of Mexico before the Deepwater Horizon incident. The results lead the Commission to conclude that the breakdown of the environmental review process for OCS activities was systemic and that the Interior's approach to the application of NEPA requirements in the offshore oil and gas context needs significant revision. In particular, the application of tiering, the use of categorical exclusions, the practice of area-wide leasing, and the failure to develop formal NEPA guidance for the agency all contributed to this breakdown. Tiering Under MMS, the NEPA process for offshore oil and gas leasing relied heavily on tiering, a practice under which a broad environmental impact statement was used to cover general matters across a large area, while issues specific to a particular site or a smaller area were addressed through subsequent narrow statements of environmental analysis. Tiering was meant to encourage more thorough reviews at a subsequent stage of the offshore leasing process and to avoid the duplication of general information that would have been covered in the previous environmental reviews as applied by MMS. However, tiering was not always consistent with the original purpose. Instead, it created a system where a deeper environmental analysis at more geographically targeted and advanced planning stages did not always take place. Categorical Exclusions The Council on Environmental Quality's Implementing Regulations for NEPA define categorical exclusions as a category of actions which do not individually or cumulatively have a significant effect on the human environment, and for which, therefore, neither an environmental assessment nor an environmental impact statement is required. MMS has historically applied categorical exclusions to both exploration plans and development operations coordination documents in the Gulf of Mexico. Although there are legitimate differences between the Gulf and other regions of the OCS, the basis for such a wide disparity in the use of categorical exclusions is questionable. And in the aftermath of the BP Deepwater Horizon spill, it is difficult to argue that the deep water drilling is an activity that does not present at least some potentially significant risk of harm to the environment of the Gulf. There is no doubt why, prompted by the comprehensive review of MMS's use of categorical exclusions by the Council on Environmental Quality, 
Interior announced in August 2010 that it would restrict its use of categorical exclusions for offshore oil and gas development to activities involving limited environmental risk while it undertakes a comprehensive review of its NEPA process. Area-wide leasing OCS lease sales cover such large geographic areas that meaningful NEPA review is difficult. A decision to dramatically increase the size of the lease sales, known as area-wide leasing, was made over 20 years ago at the request of the industry. It has necessitated environmental analysis of very large areas at the lease sale stage. For example, the final environmental impact statement for the 2007 to 2012 multi-lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico covered more than 87 million acres, while the final environmental impact statement for the Chukai Sea Lease Sale 193 covered about 34 million acres. Given that 2008 lease sales in the central Gulf of Mexico and the Chukai Sea attracted almost $3.7 billion and almost $2.7 billion in high bids, respectively, it is appropriate to conduct environmental reviews on a finer geographic scale before private sector commitments of this magnitude are made to purchase leases. NEPA Guidance Though expected to prepare a handbook on NEPA requirements, MMS never developed formal NEPA guidance. As the Government Accountability Office noted in a review of the MMS Alaska Region Office, the lack of comprehensive NEPA guidance handbook combined with high staff turnover leaves the process for meeting NEPA requirements ill-defined for the analysis charged with developing NEPA documents. BOEMRE is currently in the process of developing an internal NEPA guidance document, a step that should ensure a higher level of NEPA consistency and transparency across regions. Recommendation B1. The Council on Environmental Quality and the Department of Interior should revise and strengthen the NEPA policies, practices, and procedures to improve the level of environmental analysis, transparency, and consistency at all stages of the OCS planning, leasing, exploration, and development process. Interior should take the following steps to strengthen NEPA review of the offshore leasing process. The new Office of Leasing and Environmental Science should, in conjunction with the Council on Environmental Quality, develop and make a public formal NEPA handbook within one year. The handbook should address the issue of tiering and provide guidelines for applying NEPA in a consistent, transparent, and appropriate manner to decisions affecting OCS oil and gas activities. Interior should require, through this formal NEPA handbook, environmental impact statements for both the five-year plan and for specific lease sale before plans for the exploration, development, and production are approved in the areas with complex geology, in ultra-deep water, and in the Arctic and other frontier areas. Exploration plans and development and production plans in all other areas should be subject to NEPA review consistent with the Council on Environmental Quality's implementing regulations. In less well-explored areas, interiors should reduce the size of lease sales so their geographic scope allows for a meaningful analysis of potential environmental impacts and identification of areas of ecological significance. A bidder on tracks in these areas and all other areas should be able to demonstrate, in addition to financial prequalification and ability to contain a maximum size spill, experience operating in similar environments and a record of safe, environmentally responsible operation, either in the United States or as verified by a peer regulator for another country. 
the distinction between the OCS and less well-explored areas in the Gulf should be defined by the new entity in charge of leasing and environmental science. Congress should amend the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act to extend the 30-day deadline for approving exploration plans to 60 days. In addition, MMS should not consider such plans officially submitted until all of the required content necessary for environmental reviews and other analysis are complete and adequate to provide a sound basis for decision-making. Exploration and development plans would be considered high-level plans for purpose of agency review and approval under a reorganized regulatory structure. The Office of Safety and Environment, separate from the Office or Division of Leasing, would be responsible for permitting and approving well designs, drilling plans, and any structures. 2. The Need for Greater Interagency Consultation Under OCSLA, it is up to the Secretary of Interior to choose the proper balance between environmental protection and resource development. In making leasing decisions, the Secretary is required to solicit and consider suggestions from any interested agency, but he or she is not required to respond to the comments or accord them any particular weight. Similar issues arise at the individual lease sale stage and at the development and production plan stage. As a result, NOAA, the nation's ocean agency with the most expertise in marine science and the management of living marine resources, effectively has the same limited role as the general public in the decisions on selecting where and when to lease portions of the OCS. A more robust and formal interagency consultation process is needed, with the goal of identifying precise areas that should be excluded from the lease sales because of their high ecological importance or sensitivity. In addition to NOAA, other federal agencies that should be involved include the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and EPA. Strengthened interagency coordination on offshore oil and gas activities will also be important in implementing the final recommendation of the Interagency Ocean Policy Task Force. These recommendations, adopted by President Obama by executive order on July 19, 2010, mandate a new national ocean policy that includes a framework for coastal and marine spatial planning, as well as a comprehensive, adaptive, integrated, transparent ecosystem and science-based process for analyzing current and anticipated uses of ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes areas. Coastal and marine spatial planning applies a multi-sector approach in the effort to simultaneously reduce user conflicts and environmental impacts associated with ocean and coastal activities. Integrating five-year leasing plans and associated leasing decisions with the coastal and marine spatial planning process will be an important step toward assuring the sustainable use of ocean and coastal ecosystems. It could also reduce uncertainty for industry and provide greater predictability for potential users of different areas. To ensure that offshore oil and gas development and production proceed in ways that minimize adverse impacts to the natural and human environment, decisions about these activities must be grounded in strong science. With respect to funding the necessary science, the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act requires Interior to study the assessment and management of environmental impacts on the Outer Continental Shelf and coastal areas that might be affected by oil and gas or other mineral developments. Initiated in 1973, funding for the Environmental Studies Program at Interior peaked in 1976 at roughly $55 million, but had fallen to less than $20 million during most of the 1990s and 2000s. It was only recently increased to approximately $30 million. 
future research must be conducted in a systemic way that strategically enhances understanding of the impacts of oil and gas activities and provides regulators with the timely and scale-appropriate information required for sound decisions. Long-term studies that provide critical scientific information on OCS frontier or lesser-known areas or systemic efforts to fill data gaps in areas with existing oil and gas activity can help ensure that the selection of new leasing areas is informed by full understanding of potential impacts on important ecological resources. In frontier areas, it will be important to collect data on prevailing environmental conditions on a broad geographical scale, not just at individual lease sites. Additionally, post-development ecological monitoring is critical to the understanding of the impacts of oil and gas activities and to facilitate an adaptive approach to environmental management. Expanded coordination and cooperation on scientific research efforts with NOAA, the U.S. Geological Survey, and other agencies with relative expertise can improve the quality of science available for OCS decision-making. Much of this research will also be relevant to the other offshore activities, including the development of offshore wind resources. Recommendations B. 2. The Department of Interior should reduce risk to the environment from OCS oil and gas activities by strengthening the science and interagency consultations in the OCS oil and gas decision-making process. B. 3. Congress, by enacting legislation and the Department of Interior through its lease provision, should require the oil and gas industry to pay fees that support environmental science and regulatory review related to OCS, oil and gas activities, to enable cooperating agencies to carry out these responsibilities. See Recommendation G2. Several actions are needed to implement these recommendations. Congress should amend the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act to provide NOAA with a formal consultative role during the development of five-year lease plan and lease sale stages. Consultation should occur no later than 60 days in advance of the final Department of Interior decisions to lease plans and sales. Specifically, NOAA should provide comments and recommendations concerning specific geographic areas that should be excluded from the leasing program or treated in a specific manner due to their ecological sensitivity or for other reasons relevant to NOAA's ocean and coastal science expertise. Interior must adopt NOAA's recommendations unless the department determines that doing so would be inconsistent with important national policy interests. Moreover, Interior must publish in writing its rationale for rejecting NOAA's recommendation. The Department of Energy, NOAA, the U.S. Geological Survey, and other interested agencies should establish a joint research program to systematically collect critical scientific data, fill research gaps, and provide comprehensive, ecosystem-based scientific reviews of OCS areas that are currently or will likely be open for oil and gas leasing, and for offshore areas being considered for the siting of sources of renewable energy such as wind power. This program should build on existing data, should aim to supplement data collected from individual lease sites by industry to develop information for broader geographic areas, and should engage the non-federal scientific community through such mechanisms as a National Oceanographic Partnership Program. The research should outline and develop the necessary data for 1. Decision-making related to future leasing, exploration, and development. 2. Measuring and monitoring impacts on ecological resources and three, providing necessary data for natural resource damage assessment should an oil spill occur. The National Academy of Sciences should regularly evaluate the government's studies program in this area, preferably at five-year intervals.
Together with NOAA, the new Division of Environmental Science under the direction of the Chief Scientist in the Office of Leasing and Environmental Science should develop an environmental monitoring program or set of protocols to be implemented by oil and gas companies at lease sites once exploration and development and production activities begin. Areas of ecological interest and areas where data gaps exist should be targeted for monitoring programs. In addition, monitoring should be conducted in a way that is independently verifiable and allows for comparisons across individual sites. Companies should provide all monitoring data to the federal government. NOAA and other federal agencies with appropriate expertise should be encouraged to act as cooperating agencies in NEPA reviews of offshore energy production activities, including exploration and development plans and drilling permit applications. Federal agencies that submit comments to Interior as part of a NEPA process should receive a written response indicating how the information was applied and if it was not included, why it was not included. C. Strengthening Oil Spill Response, Planning, and Capacity Just as the events of April 20, 2010 exposed a regulatory regime that had not kept up with the industry it was responsible for overseeing, the events that unfolded in subsequent weeks and months made it dismayingly clear that neither BP nor the federal government was prepared to deal with a spill of the magnitude and complexity of the Deepwater Horizon disaster. This section discusses the Commission's recommendations in the area of oil spill response and planning. Broadly speaking, they address three critical issues or gaps in the government's existing response capacity. 1. The failure to plan effectively for large-scale, difficult-to-contain spill in deep water environment or potentially in the Arctic. 2. The difficulty of coordinating with state and local government officials to deliver an effective response. And 3. A lack of information and understanding concerning the efficacy of specific response measures such as dispersants and berms. 1. The Need for Improved Oil Spill Response Planning Oil spill response planning and analysis across the government needs to be overhauled in light of the lessons of the Deepwater Horizon blowout. A common interagency approach to analyzing oil spill risks and a common understanding of the issues and impacts involved are needed and must be consistently incorporated in environmental reviews, consultations, and authorizations. Environmental review and spill planning currently occurs at different levels within the government and industry. These reviews and plans have not been sufficiently coordinated to ensure either searching review of industry plans or adequate preparation. One of the most common threads that runs through many of the environmental review documents prepared for the Gulf of Mexico oil and gas activities in the years leading up to the Deepwater Horizon spill was their reliance on MMS, Oil Spill Risk and Impact Analysis. To the extent that any of these documents contained errors or incomplete information, those gaps and errors carried through to subsequent environmental reviews by other agencies. The government's spill response planning occurs largely outside of MMS. The National Contingency Plan, mandated by the Clean Water Act, prescribes the nationwide response structure for spills of oil or releases of hazardous substances and creates tiered planning process. Regional response teams include representation from federal agencies and state governments and develop regional contingency plans as well as pre-authorization protocols for certain response strategies. The area committees, which develop area contingency plans, similarly include federal and state representatives but are led by the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard and EPA co-chair the regional teams. 
the area contingency plans are the most specific and most relied upon during the response of a spill. While industry spill response plans must be consistent with the requirements of the National Contingency Plan and Area Contingency Plans, those industry plans presently require only the approval of BOEMRE. Its regulations outline what needs to be included in these plans and direct the company to include information about a worst-case scenario, including how to calculate the volume of oil, determine its trajectory, and a response strategy. As noted above, MMS, Oil Spill Risk and Impacts Modeling, formed the basis of the required analysis. These response plans were not distributed to any federal agencies for review and comment outside of MMS. Additionally, only a small number of plans developed for the Gulf were sent to existing Office of Leasing and Environment for detailed environmental review within MMS or shared with other government agencies with relevant expertise, such as NOAA or the Coast Guard. Finally, no provision was made for any form of public review or comment, and plans were not available to the public after they received MMS approval. Recommendation C1 the Department of Interior should create a rigorous, transparent, and meaningful oil spill risk analysis and planning process for the development and implementation of better oil spill response. Several steps are needed to implement a rigorous, transparent, and meaningful oil spill risk analysis and planning process. Interior should review and revise its regulations and guidance for industry oil spill response plans in light of the lessons learned from the Deepwater Horizon experience. A new process for reviewing spill response plans is needed. This process should ensure that all critical information and spill scenarios are included in the plans, including oil spill containment and control methods to ensure that operators can deliver the capabilities indicated in the response plans. In addition, the new entity within the interior that is charged with overseeing offshore safety and environmental protection will have to verify operator capability to perform according to the plans. Interior must ensure that adequate technical expertise exists within the staff responsible for reviewing and approving spill response plans. In addition to the Department of Interior, other agencies with relevant scientific and operational expertise should play a role in evaluating spill response plans to verify that operators can conduct the response and containment operations detailed in their plans. Specifically, oil spill response plans, including source-controlled measures, should be subject to interagency review and approved by the Coast Guard, EPA, and NOAA. Other parts of the federal government, such as the Department of Energy National Laboratories that possess relevant scientific expertise, could be consulted. This would help remedy the past failure to integrate multiple area, regional, and industry response plans by involving the agencies with primary responsibility for government spill response planning and oversight of industry planning. Plans should also be made for a public comment period prior to the final approval and response plans should be made available to the public following their approval. Interior should incorporate the worst-case scenario calculations from industry oil spill response plans into NEPA documents and other environmental analysis or reviews. This does not mean that Interior would be required to conduct a worst-case scenario analysis under NEPA, but it does mean that Interior would use industry's worst-case estimates for potential oil spill situations in its environmental analysis. 2. The need for a new approach to handling spills of national significance. The Macondo Well blowout caused the largest accidental oil spill in history, one that presented an unprecedented challenge to the response capability of both government and industry. 
clearly neither was adequately equipped in fact it was quickly evident that even the response capacity indicated in industry spill response plans did not exist though in the national contingency plan permitted the government to designate the spill as one of national significance this designation did not trigger any procedures other than allowing the federal government to name a national incident commander the spill's magnitude calls into question whether the national contingency plan establishes an appropriate relationship between the federal government and the responsible party as the public demanded in the weeks and months following the deepwater horizon spill that the government demonstrate control of the response the responsible party that caused the spill is clearly legally responsible for containing the spill and mitigating its harmful consequences the federal government not the responsible party must be in charge of those efforts as the spill demonstrated the government unfortunately lacked both the expertise and the capacity to oversee aspects of the response at the outset of the spill particularly the effort to control the well only as the full scope of the disaster unfolded and the government gathered and focused resources from a variety of agencies was the government ultimately able to take charge recommendation c2 epa and the coast guard should establish distinct plans and procedures for responding to a spill of national significance under the existing law epa is the federal agency responsible for developing a national contingency plan which is the federal government's blueprint for responding to both oil spills and hazardous substances releases in light of the deepwater horizon oil spill epa should amend or issue new guidance on the national contingency plan to add distinct plans and procedures for spills of national significance in those amendments epa should increase government oversight of the responsible party based on the national contingency plan's requirement that the government direct the response or a spill poses a potential threat to public health or welfare augment the national response team and regional response team structures to establish additional frameworks for providing interagency scientific and policy-making expertise during a spill further epa noaa and the coast guard should develop procedures to facilitate review and input from the scientific community for example by encouraging disclosure of underlying methodologies and data create a communications protocol that accounts for participation by high-level officials who may be less familiar with the national contingency plan structure and create a communication center within the national incident command separate from the joint information center established in partnership with a responsible party to help transmit consistent and complete information to the public three the need to strengthen state and local involvement the response to the deepwater horizon disaster showed that the state and local elected officials had not been adequately involved in oil spill contingency planning though career responders in state government had participated extensively in such planning before the deepwater horizon spill state and local elected officials were not regular participants in area committee meetings or familiar with the local area contingency plans the coast guard and area committee member agencies had done little to reach out to state and local elected officials these state and local officials were more familiar with hurricane response under the stafford act in which the federal government provides funding and supports state and local governments but does not control emergency response operations as a result state and local political officials had incorrect expectations about their roles they understandably wanted to be responsive to the citizens who were concerned about the spill and regardless of the official response plans sought state and local governmental assistance 
unfamiliarity with, and lack of trust in the federal response manifested itself in competing state structures and attempts to control the response operations that undercut the efficiency of the response overall. Federal responders improved their relationship with state and local officials as the response progressed, but had better coordination and communication existed sooner, that relationship could have been more productive in the early days of the spill response. Moreover, increased citizen involvement before a spill occurs could create better mechanisms to utilize local citizens in response efforts, provide an additional layer of review to prevent industry and government complacency, and increase public trust in response operations. Recommendation C3. EPA and the Coast Guard should bolster state and local involvement in oil spill contingency planning and training and create a mechanism for local involvement in spill planning and response similar to the Regional Citizens Advisory Councils mandated by the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. EPA and the Coast Guard, as the chair and vice chair of the National Response Team, should issue policies and guidance for increased state and local involvement in oil spill contingency planning and training. This guidance should provide protocols to include local officials from areas at high risk for oil spills in training exercises. Establish liaisons between the unified command and affected local communities at the outset of a spill response. Add a local on-scene coordinator position to the unified command structure. Provide additional clarification and guidance to federal, state, and local officials on the differences between emergency response under the Stafford Act and under the National Contingency Plan. In addition, a mechanism should be created for ongoing local involvement in spill planning and response in the Gulf. In the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, Congress mandated Citizens Council for Prince William Sound and Cook Inlet. In the Gulf, such a council should broadly represent the citizens' interest in the area, such as fishing and tourism, and possibly include representation from oil and gas workers as ex officio, non-voting members. The citizens' group should be funded by the Gulf leaseholders. The Commission further recommends that federal regulators be required to consult with the Council on relevant issues, that operators provide the Council with access to records and other information, and that entities, either in industry or in government, declining the Council's advice, submit their reasons to the Council in writing. 4. The need for increased research and development to improve spill response. The technology available for cleaning up oil spills has improved only incrementally since 1990. Federal research and development programs in this area are unfunded. In fact, Congress has never appropriated even half the full amount authorized by Oil Pollution Act of 1990 for oil spill research and development. In addition, the major oil companies have committed minimal resources to in-house research and development related to the spill response technology. Oil spill removal organizations are underfunded in general and dedicate few, if any, resources to research and development. Though some commentators and industry representatives have argued that more research and development would not have allowed for a more effective spill response because no technology will ever collect more than a fraction of the spilled oil, the fact is that neither industry nor government has made significant investments in improving the menu of response options or significantly improved their effectiveness. Thus, any argument about the limited potential of response technology is speculative. After the Deepwater Horizon spill, agencies, industry, and entrepreneurs focused attention on developing new response technologies for the first time in 20 years, and a number of promising options emerged within a relatively short period of time, including beach cleaning machines, subsea dispersant delivery systems, and new situ burning techniques.
End of section 27.